Trusting the Bible is a podcast series from Tyndall House Cambridge and Bible Society. Conversations with experts in biblical studies. In our first series, Trusting the Gospels, we're exploring the reliability, relevance and reality of the four gospel accounts. In this episode, Dr Andrew Ollerton and Dr Peter J Williams discuss the reliability of the gospels. Who were their authors and can we trust their testimonies? Well, Andrew Walton here. Thanks for joining us for part two with Dr. Peter J. Williams. We're at Tyndale House where Peter is the principal and we're talking about, well, can we trust the Gospels really, the reliability of the text that we have, the four Gospels in the New Testament that give us our access really today to the life of Jesus. Um, Peter, thanks for joining us again. Great to be with you. So last time we we gave a bit more of a general setup to the Gospels, I suppose, and a little bit of your journey. You're in the academic world and you've I suppose, been through the mill a little bit in terms of what, you know, are these texts reliable? And we live in a context where that gets pretty pretty well tested and challenged. But you've come to a place of real confidence. I mean, how would you summarise your position? What do you, what do you think, that, in terms of the status or quality of the Gospels, how would you summarise their accuracy? And Oh, I, I think they're totally trustworthy and completely amazing. Uh, but there's a question, a difference between what I personally hold about them and what I think you can easily demonstrate and in terms of easily demonstrate i think you can show that they are um worthy of everyone's trust yeah okay so back to that word trust we picked up on that in part one didn't we that and and the trust is both in the gospels and then through the gospels ultimately to the person of jesus christ which yeah that's right which as you say that's what we're used to doing as human beings isn't it we trust people or we choose not to depending on what we sense so we're going to pick up a bit more detail um in part two get well actually get into the real detail of Mm -hmm. flora and uh, (laughs) locations and names and all sorts but before we go there just in terms of we've got these four gospels not one attempts have been made over the centuries and they to harmonize them into one Mm -hmm. and and yet maybe that misses the point slightly that four is good um i say that let's start with a challenge four means that there are differences and sometimes people say not differences contradictions you know um, they pick up on examples where it seems like one gospel says one thing another gospel says another people you know whether that's the death of judas and whether that's the details around um where john fits the cleansing of the temple compared Mm -hmm. to the other three gospels yeah so difference or contradiction how do you how do you think of that what i'd say is i i i don't mind uh if there is a contradiction at one level i think i've i've written that john's gospel deliberately has lots of contradictions even within it so you just got one gospel and it will have jesus uh, saying things like uh, i didn't come into the world to judge the world and also for judgment i came into the world for instance just to mm-hmm. give you one, one example um and i would say jesus as a teacher used paradox um a lot of teachers do um and so even if we just get down to you know, his teachings there's contradiction there does that mean it's not true does that mean it's not reliable does that mean he's not a good teacher or does it make you actually sit up and think wow i should pay a bit more attention Mm -hmm. to what's going on so see if i can learn so of course when you then get four accounts of one life uh, there are going to be differences but imagine if you had 400 accounts or 4,000 accounts, there might be even more differences. And so from this sort of logic, you could almost make it so the more accounts you have of someone's life, the less certain you are about anything. Mm. Um, so something that's witnessed by one person is somehow more certain than something witnessed by 80,000 people in the stadium because there are so many different differences between their accounts. This is a silly way of thinking. The fact that there are four accounts should not lead us to think that we can have less confidence uh, in them. 
But also the differences that we have are not of the sort that could not possibly be reconciled. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not saying that Jesus was born in one country and also that he was born in another country far away. Let me just give just one example, because it just sometimes it's good to get very concrete, isn't it? What, What are we talking about? So in John's gospel... Jesus cleanses the temple seemingly, and John's quite clear in the chrono- chronology yep. that this is at the beginning. You know, yep. so it's right with the, um, around the time of um, the, the wedding at Cana. And then in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they seem to be very clear that it's within that final week. It's an mm. act of judgment yep. and all that. You know, what, you talk about reconciling these differences. Yep. What, how, what, just at a personal level, what's your view on how? Okay, how so can that go um, we've got someone who's a protester. And you have an account of them at a protest. And then you have another account of them at a protest at a different time. How do you reconcile those two? Maybe they went to two protests. Mm -hmm. You know, um, in fact, they probably went to lots of protests. Now, if Jesus finds uh, what's going on in the temple offensive, why would he not protest regularly? You know, I mean, as in how many times might he have protested about the commerce going on in the temple? It could have been quite a number of times. So I'm saying at the outset, there is the possibility that this happens multiple times. People say, well, hang on, people would never let him back into the temple if he did that and so on. This is completely impractical. Temples are a huge area and no one has photos of anyone. Mm. So no one knows what anyone looks like, not even the emperor, because, I mean, the emperor's face on the coin actually is made by the metalsmiths who've never met the emperor. You know, just give him a big nose and call him Mm. the emperor. So... In this, no one knows what anyone looks like. So the idea that this couldn't happen multiple yeah, okay. times is, is absurd. So just at the very outset, I'd say that has to be a possibility. Mm. But there are scholars who would want to say, you know, uh, for various literary reasons, you know, um, a gospel writer has moved this event. But I'd want to say, uh, for, for me, there is no problem with this having happened three, four, five times. Yeah. There are, you know, differences in in the accounts but at the end of the day jesus is a protester Mm. and you know an occasional protester but if he's protesting you know it can happen Mm. multiple times jesus the protester yeah that's good another way of thinking about so 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 i get that reconciled precisely because this happened more than one occasion and therefore we start to think well when john for example includes it this occasion early on and then later in the gospel he says there's so many other things that we could have said about jesus that we haven't you know there's Mm -hmm. all the world couldn't hold that content that gives us a clue then that these gospels are quite ca- carefully crafted for a particular message, right? They're, they're not, they're obviously telling the history, but they're also, John's got a particular audience in mind, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're seeking to develop their biographies of Jesus with, with audience and intent. So, so in that sense, the difference is they're not contradictions, but at the same time, they are actually giving us a rich diversity of approach to Jesus. Mm-hmm. How could you help us understand the different, I suppose, intentions or audiences yep. of the Gospels? So, I mean, the, the, the Gospels are each two, three hours long. They're, they're snapshots of someone's life. And what you mustn't do is read too much into what they omit. But in terms of what they have, uh, Matthew's Gospel has a real emphasis as you go through on Jesus as king, announcing the kingdom, uh, but using lots of royal language right the way through. And of course, the irony is, you know, uh, the, the crown of thorns at the end and how people are mocking him as mm. a king when he really is. And, and it ends with him uh, saying that all authority has been given to him and that people should go out making disciples mm. uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, Mark's gospel, an emphasis on the uh, way Jesus came um 
secretly in, in some sense. I mean, John the Baptist prepared a way for him, but also when he carries out miracles, he's telling people repeatedly not to uh, go and announce that. I mean, lots of emphasis on the actions of Jesus there uh, within Mark. Only two major sections or two or three of, of teaching. Uh, Luke uh, lots of, of parables there, lots of emphasis on uh, events in Jerusalem. Probably a major emphasis in Luke is, is is reversal, where those who are lowly are exalted and so on. I mean, these things you can find in all of them. Um, and in, in John, uh, this amazing opening of the gospel about how um, the word of God, the son of God, has always existed with God and has come into the world as the light and yet people love darkness rather than light and, and they reject him. Lots of use of rich irony in John's Gospel, lots of use of, of, of symbolism. So they all have their different uh, features. But underlying that, you also see a huge uh, unity in the way that um, uh, Jesus is presented. Do you want to go further in your knowledge of the Bible? Tinder House and Bible Society have more resources to help you do just that. Why not check out Inc, a free magazine from Tinder House that aims to bring you current research on Bible manuscripts, languages and the ancient world. It's for everyone, regardless of academic knowledge or experience, and it's free. Sign up for a post or e-subscription on the Tinder House website. There's also the Bible course from Bible Society. The Bible course is an eight-season small group resource that combines video teaching from Dr Andrew Ollerton with interactive study time. It shows how the whole Bible fits together, from Genesis to Revelation, and how it applies to our lives today. Search The Bible Course or visit Bible Society's website to order a copy today. Well, let's pick up on that because you said in the part one that um, there's a sense in which whilst we're not we're talking about trust here, this isn't some kind of scientific experiment. But nevertheless, there are tests that can be run. Those were the, that was the phrase I think you used. And in your book, you pick up on this, that the, the gospel writers were clearly able to include a level of detail that can almost be tested and cross-referenced. Can you start to give us then... Uh, from your research and others, what what are some of the illustrations um, of detail that the Gospels include that that gives clear evidence that these were based on eyewitness testimony? So what you can do is you can start by testing at a very basic level their knowledge of the land they're writing about. Do they know the names of towns, villages? Do they use the verbs go up and go down when the land goes up and down? Um, do they get the right travelling distances is, and so on? It's worth saying, isn't it? That's not straightforward. Because it's not straightforward. If, it's everyone's, very, very... if everyone's been to Jerusalem and that area, they'll know that the topography is complex, <laughs> isn't it? You're forever going There's up. There's a and lot then, of yeah. undulation. Okay. And so, so the fact that they always know that you go down from mm -hmm. Cana to uh, Capernaum or from Nazareth to uh, Capernaum, you know, this is not insignificant. Um, and then you can ask, okay, well, do they get the right strata in society? Do they know the different groups that they're around? Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, and so on. And yes, they have that knowledge. Do they have them doing the right thing? If you look at the proportions of jobs that there are in, in the Gospels, are they representing the right sort of economy? Are they representing the coinage right? Are they representing the uh, flora mm. right? Uh, when, when they mentioned, you know, uh, Palm Sunday and, and, and mm -hmm. you know, uh, palm branches, you know, are there palm branches? Is there a Mount of Olives? Are there olives on the Mount of Olives? You know, when they mentioned Gethsemane, which means the um, uh, press of oil, uh, is there 
you know, oil mm. on the Mount of Olives. Yeah, there's sure lots of olive oil. Mm. So these are the sorts of things you can test and you can say, do they really know what they're talking about? And the answer is yes, they do. Mm. Um, and it's not that they're just passing one test. They're passing a whole load of independent tests. So if you were to write a piece of historical fiction about somewhere you'd never been, um, it would be incredibly difficult. I mean, even with a vast amount of research, you would make terrible mistakes. Um, and yet we find that the Gospels don't have these sorts of blunders, even people's names. I mean, we now have studies on the relative proportion of people's names in the land at the time, and you find that the names are so right. There are trends, right? There, yeah, are, there, are, yeah. there are popular names that come in and out of fashion. How, how have scholars been able to use that for the reliability of the Gospels? Yes, well, I mean, you know, people in Britain you know, a thousand years ago, the word names Athelstan and Ethelred were used, but they're not really uh, common, common nowadays. Uh, these things change over time. Yeah. And so you can uh, look and study the names in Palestine at the time, looking at bone boxes called ossuaries. You can look at historians like Josephus. You can look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can make databases of the names and you find that basically the sorts of names you have in the Gospels for a Palestinian Jewish men and women fit. So the top name outside the Gospels is Simon mm. for a man, Mary for a woman. That's also the top name inside the Gospels. And then also with these top names, they add extra things to sort of distinguish them, to disambiguate them. Mm. Uh, and so Simon, uh, often you'll find when you get a Simon in the Gospels, there's something extra. They're called Simon Peter, Simon the Zealot, um, Simon the Leper, some, something that will distinguish them uh, from all the others. Which is how this particular Simon was yeah. actually known. They're so personal, aren't they? I mean, you know, names is really um, represents the, the, the individual. And, and what I suppose it, it reminds us of is the life of Jesus is not just some anonymous magic show, right, where he's just mm -hmm. parading around faceless crowds of people. We're given the names, the locations, the jobs, the detail and the families mm -hmm. of these people as if to say Jesus Christ impacted real lives in real places. Just to be clear in terms of why this matters, both the big why question, you, know, you got all this detail, even down to, as you say, names and flora and locations. But why does that matter? What What particular, if you like, what sort of almost conspiracy theories or alternative views about the Gospels are discredited because of that level of detail. So, I mean, some people have this idea that the, the Gospels were written a very long time later or uh, in a very different place. Now, they could have been written in a very different place, but they have to be written on the basis either of having been to the land or having had really extended research conversations with people in the land. Either way, the information can get uh, reliable information can get passed down. But the idea um, that they got things wrong because of some uh, extensive telephone game uh, method, that is falsified by this because simply you wouldn't get those sorts of details passed down if it were going through many, many steps. Mm. So, the, so the sort of the church invented Jesus um, as the Son of God. The, centuries later, it, it just, it, it just, you couldn't have the gospel accounts we have. Yeah, it, it does make sense, and and I mean, apart from the fact that you know there are copies of the gospels mm. uh, from second and third century, and there are quotations mm. from them, and so on. But if the church made 
made Jesus up, they would make up a completely different Jesus. They wouldn't make up the Jewish Jesus that we have in the Gospels because mm. the church wasn't so interested in Judaism mm. uh, by that time. They would have Jesus tell you how to run a church service. He never does in the Gospels. They'd tell you how to include Gentiles. He never does in the Gospels. All the sorts of things that you would want him to teach about. If people were putting stuff onto his lips, that's the sort of stuff people would put. And it's not what you've got. What you've got is authentic speech from the time and place. It's got linguistic patterns that fit uh, that place. It's got words that fit that time and place. And could you just comment then to this thing? Because I think, I mean, I find this very compelling. I really enjoyed both your book and there's plenty of other research. I mean, it's, it's, it's worth saying, isn't it? I think that there's a, a sort of mine of research that's, oh, yeah, that's yeah. really changed yeah. the conversation about how reliable the Gospels are, at least in terms of the historical details in, what would you say, the last 20 years or so? Yeah, and, I mean, Richard Borkham's yeah. book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, is a very key mm. uh, book, but there are, there are other things as well mm. that just accumulate to show... Uh, the sort of depth of detail there is. But just on the question then, so how far can this get us? Because, okay, so potentially all of the local detail, the the, the individual mm. names, who their father was, where that's referenced, uh, what, what kind of tree. Uh, mm. I mean, I love the story of Zacchaeus. It's a good example, isn't it? Mm. Where you get this, not only given his name, but the sycamore tree, which, I mean, what, what's the point there? And this is a story set in Jericho. Mm. And uh, Jericho, because it's one of the lowest cities on earth, actually has got a different climate from uh, most other cities in Palestine. And, you know, it records that there's a sy- uh, sycamore tree that he climbed up. And of course, that is something that is recorded elsewhere that there were sycamore trees in, in Jericho. So, so let's assume that's all accurate. Yeah. But what do you say to the argument? Well, okay, so they got the tree right and they got all the mm-hmm. detail right. But actually, because on the way into Jericho, Jesus, it's claimed healed the blind man, mm-hmm. right? Um, blind Bartimaeus. Again, we're given his name. But what, what's your answer to, well, maybe they got all of the detail right. That really, but, but that actually didn't happen. You know, so, the, so you, you know, the, the details there but it's still possible that the stories are fabricated. So sometimes people have this idea that stories get fabricated because they get passed from mouth to mouth through many steps and get exaggerated. And the problem with that is that um, you, if you were passing it through many steps, you wouldn't get the peripheral details right, mm. the plausibility of the Aramaic mixed with Greek name Bartimaeus and so on. Um, the, these sorts of details wouldn't be all in place. You'd have to imagine that people corrupted the most important part of the story, namely the the miracle, and left the peripheral parts in place. You'd have to have a mechanism for selective corruption of information. That's problematic. But also, I think uh, that there is a level at which, of course, we cannot prove and demonstrate that miracles took place. I'm not ever arguing that you can. But what I'm saying is when we do these historical tests, they work on the Gospels. And um, if we then decide, I could never believe a miracle. You will reject the Gospels. But you're not doing that because the history fails. You're doing that because of your presuppositions against miracles. And when you look at the person of Jesus, Jesus is not just any old person. He's presented as God coming into the earth to show us who he is. And when you realize that, look, if there's a God, how difficult can it be for uh, him to do miracles? It's not difficult at all. And if you don't trust in this God, you have the alternatives uh, that you have to think about that you're probably going to believe in all sorts of secular type miracles to get conscious beings here. You know, so uh, it, it's, it's not a choice between uh, believing in 
miracles or not. I, I think what you have effectively is you've got to look at the Gospels as a whole and say, does this make sense of life? You can do the historical tests, but you also can look at this as a question of life. Mm. Uh, and when, every time you get up and devote any time or energy to anything, you've decided it's worthwhile. Everyone's already doing that with mm. their lives. Mm. So the question is, what are you currently committing your life to? Can you prove to me it's worthwhile, more worthwhile than uh, life following Jesus as recommended in the Gospels? So we've looked at the Gospels and their reliability, um, these four Gospels, but they're not actually the only sources about Jesus, are they? I know they're the most comprehensive, but can you just tell us a bit more about even if for whatever reasons people are not persuaded by the they say that these Gospels are biased, what other sources are there that give us history on Jesus? Well, we do have uh, other sources. Uh, for instance, the Roman writer Cornelius Tacitus uh, writes about the great fire in Rome that took place in the year 64. He was a young child at the time, but he talks about how uh, this began uh, and that Nero was getting blamed for it. And so he decided to blame uh, a group um, that uh, was named after Christ and Christ had been put to death specifically, he says, uh, in the reign of Tiberius. So sometime between the year 14 and the year 37. And that happened when Pontius Pilate was in charge of uh, Judea. And so he locates the place. And we know Pontius Pilate from other sources was in charge from the year 26 to the year 36. So again, just from the accounts of Tastus, you can work out something about when um, uh, Jesus was put to death. Uh, you also have Josephus, who writes about Jesus on a couple of occasions. One of the times uh, he actually talks about um, Jesus having this brother called James. Well, again, that's um, also found in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, that, that Jesus has a brother called uh, James and this person in Josephus' account actually dies because of his religious beliefs. So in other words, it's not just that people far away, uh, the, the Christians who were persecuted in the time of uh, Nero for their being being Christian. There's also people uh, close at hand, like Jesus' brother James, who, who died um, in their beliefs as well. So I'd say you can build up a picture of that. I quite like the account uh, of Pliny, the governor of uh, Bithynia, uh, writing to the emperor around the year 111 or 12 and, and saying, uh, so many people in my area have become Christians that the temples are almost deserted. Mm. And that confirms something of the spread of Christianity. But also he, he tests people on whether they're uh, Christians by, are they prepared to curse Christ? And he finds that these people are he, he could test whether someone's a Christian or not based on whether they're prepared to worship the Roman gods and mm. the emperor. Why would that work as a test? Because these people aren't prepared to accept other gods because, you know, following Judaism, you only have one god. And yet, as he records what these people do, he records that they meet and they sing together as Christ as to a god. Mm. So how can they be counting Jesus as a god if they only accept there is one god? Well, because clearly they are identifying Jesus as that that God of the Jews. So all of these things you can put together from non-Christian sources. But obviously, the most enthusiastic people about Jesus are mm. Jesus followers, and they're the people who wrote the most. Mm. And you shouldn't write off their testimony just because they're Christians. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, if you're accused of something terrible, and uh, but your testimony was discounted 
from being able to defend yourself in your innocence because someone said you're you know too invested in proving your innocence it, it, it doesn't seem to make any sense yeah and, and you use the analogy in your book don't you of, if, if you were going to read a book on badminton for example it's probably written by someone who's passionate about badminton exactly. isn't it you know, exactly. there's nothing yeah, wrong with that sure. it's still an accurate guide to the game yeah. kind of thing and I, I found that yeah. helpful but I, do, I mean I think those sources those extra biblical sources if you like sources outside the bible about Jesus not only do they I suppose remind our rather sceptical secular western audiences that you cannot really doubt the historical existence of Jesus mm -hmm. in any credible way. Not only that, they actually do give us some insights, don't they? And I mean, hearing what you're just picking up, the letters of Pliny particularly, yep. the, the resilience of Christians yep. and the impact of Christians in the world is quite extraordinary. Yes. I mean, I, I would just say that I think people can doubt the existence of Jesus. And, and the reason why is because we all know nowadays how to call in expertise to support what we already want to believe. Mm. Uh, and it's an amazing phenomenon you can see nowadays. Let's say, illustrate it from politics, where people can easily bring in the evidence they want to support the case they do. But people do this with science as well and other things. So if someone wants not to believe in Jesus, people are intelligent enough to find excuses. You're having to fight your way through a lot of evidence to get yeah, there, aren't you? And I think right. um, it, it leaves every human being with with the simple question, who is Jesus? Because he definitely yeah, existed. Absolutely. Um, and that's an important question to answer. Pete, that's great. Thank you so much for talking with us. And uh, I, I certainly think for our listeners that just that sense of confidence in the Gospels, um, from a, from a, just from a sheer historical accuracy point of view, um, has been raised. So thank you. Thank you. Trusting the Bible is a collaboration between Tyndall House Cambridge and Bible Society. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to catch the rest of the conversation. If you'd like to know more about what we do, visit us online at tinderhouse.com or biblesociety.org.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the series, so do get in touch, either on Twitter at Tyndale underscore house or email us communications at tinderhouse.com. Thank you.